0: I'm going to ask that we all bow our heads in prayer. Just start rattling off all the bad things I've done until you get tired of hearing about it, or what? I'm going to talk to you about the judge of the fatherless. Uh, I'm sure he doesn't mean to be so difficult, Mrs. Cleaver. It's just that he's at the age where he doesn't realize how important it is to keep a promise. Which Bible stories you want to hear? Is this a Sunday school? Thanks, Dad. Well Welcome back to the Faith of the Fathers podcast. I'm your host, Carl Gessler, here to reignite the faith of our fathers. And Today I want to talk about the biggest mistake that Christians make when they go to court. And I'm not talking about the county courthouse downtown, wherever you live. I'm talking about the court of heaven. I have not thought much about the court of heaven until recently. Thank you to Dave Hayes, also known as the praying medic. He's got some great books on operating in the court of heaven. I used to think that that would be, any that kind of language is just hyper-charismatic, over-sensational, um, kind, kind of imaginative stuff or speculative stuff. What do you mean? How do you know what the courts of heaven are like? It's a little bit of a subject for another day, except to say that I've come to realize I've operated in the court of heaven all my life uh, in various capacities. I just didn't use that language, but... I find that it makes a lot of sense, and it is, it is very helpful. In fact, not only I, but you engage in the court of heaven all the time, every day, really. Um, and you, we do it this way. By the heavenly courtroom, too, I want to just say that it, we're talking about a, uh, something in the spiritual realm. And you and I live in the spiritual realm, even as we live in the physical realm. It is, it's a shared experience. So anytime we hear the voice of accusation, whether that's through a spouse, a parent, or in our own souls, we enter the court of heaven. And what do I mean by accusation? Something, a voice within us that says, you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're selfish. You're, you're prideful. Um, you should be ashamed of yourself. We hear all of these things, you know, maybe we've engaged in lustful lustful behavior and we're ashamed of that and we're hearing inside of us, oh, you you will never be clean, you will never be free. All these things are the voice of accusation. Someone else uh, might say, you know, um, we might come into our house after a hard day's work and uh, the wife is upset because um, she says we work too much. And maybe we came we came home really late, and she had a rough day with the kids. The kids were crying; they were looking for daddy, and he was gone working. And she says he worked too much, and that is the voice of accusation. Many men will actually get upset when they hear their wife say that because what goes through our heads is I'm working really hard. You're we're feeling all this stress from the world. We know what bills need to be paid and all this kind of stuff, and basically. I've worked my butt off. I'm tired. I come into the house and you tell me I'm not good enough. And then we have a good fight over it. Uh, That is common experience. That is the voice of accusation. And that voice of accusation automatically puts us into this courtroom scenario that many times we are engaged in without realizing that we're engaged in it. Uh, The voice that says you're not good enough or you're guilty or you should be ashamed and we fight against that in various ways. Like in the example I just gave, we might lash out in anger and basically point the finger at the other person and say, you're the problem. Or we know that they're right and we slink away and take some alcohol, uh, numb the pain, or do some drugs, or sit in front of the TV and just veg, try not to think about those negative thoughts, those negative emotions, that sense of failure. Um, and, uh, and so we live in bondage uh, because of the voice of accusation. Anytime you enter a court, the goal uh, should be, as an individual, when I go to the courtroom, I want justice and I want freedom. The court also wants justice, and thankfully, in our case, the judge, God, the judge of all, wants our freedom, and he also wants the world to be made right he is duty bound the uh, any good judge is bound to the truth more than he is to any individual um but we have a remarkable judge who uh makes things right by the sacrifice of himself um so this judge is completely committed to the truth and com- com- completely committed to us as well but he's more bound to the truth he cannot be bound he cannot be committed to us and uh, separate him from the truth, as himself from the truth as well. He must be committed to the truth above all, which he is. He is the truth and cannot be unfaithful to himself. So the, the mistake that we make in the courtroom of heaven is that we, well, many times we'll plead not guilty. We'll say, you know, we just can't handle the idea that um, we're not good enough because we don't know how to be better. And so we just reject it. That's a mistake, you know, just in the scenario I just gave. Arguments will continue. Anger will continue to be there. Frustration, all, all the uh, the strife that comes with that, and you won't be free. So you will enter the courtroom, and you will leave in bondage. You will leave in chains. You'll be bound to your anger. You'll be bound to your pride. Your marriage will be bound to the limitations that you have set up on it by not acknowledging your guilt. But many Christians make the mistake um of pleading not guilty in a way that maybe we don 't always realize that that 's what we 're doing there's a a um, an understanding about imputed righteousness now the idea of imputed righteousness is one that um is debated what that exactly means um and I have my own ideas about that, but I want to keep things simple today but There is an idea, a a doctrinal idea, a theological idea that many people teach that um, Jesus doesn't, when God looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees Jesus. You know, once you are in Christ, he doesn't see you anymore. He only sees Jesus and his righteousness. Therefore, you are guilt-free. I went to a church when I was um, 18 and I was asked to leave. Uh, because they said I was teaching too much law. And I was someone who was very devoted to Jesus um, and passionate about holiness. And in that church, which called itself Grace, uh, with a capital G, um, there was a lot of um, lewdness. There was a lot of uh, vulgar language. A lot of the kids engaged in... um, uh watching movies and music that was very ungodly and to this day I still hold that we allow satan to wreak havoc in our lives because we engage in things through our eyes and ears that are ungodly you know if there if we shouldn't be um sleeping around with our our neighbor's wife then neither should we be watching somebody do that on television and i mean there's you know there's a way they used to tell stories in movies uh, where you got the gist of something that happened without actually having to sit through it and watch it we repackage porn in so many different ways through movies that's another topic but the point is there's a lot of licentiousness there and I would uh, challenge people on uh, you know just saying like this this shouldn't be happening and they told me I was teaching too much law and not enough grace and they, Their motto that they had on the wall was, it's Jesus plus nothing, nothing, nothing. Well, our standing before God um, in righteousness is totally, 100%, a gift of grace from Jesus. But there is um, an application of his grace that we have to make. We were talking about this in our home fellowship recently, and just the image came into my mind of the Passover in uh, the Old Testament when the Israelites are about to leave Egypt. They're slaves in Egypt, and God has been sending plagues upon the Egyptian people to uh, convince them to let his people go. Uh, but the Israelites were also experiencing, um, the, particularly this last plague, there was a death angel that was sweeping through, f- through the nation. And it was killing the firstborn in every home, except those that had the blood of the lamb over the door. Uh, so the, the Israelites were told to sacrifice an unblemished lamb and to, um, you know, brush the blood over the door of their house. And when the death angel passed by, it would see the blood and it would not go near the family. So um, that blood was completely effective from for protecting. The Israelites from death, but if you did not apply the blood over the door, it wouldn't have had any. It wouldn't have done you any good. It doesn't mean that the blood lacks power, but it means that you lacked the faith to put it over the door. Uh, so there are a lot of people who will say uh, when they're Christians and they're confronted with sin, and they'll say, um, "God doesn't see me uh, and my sin; He sees Jesus and His righteousness." But there's a problem with that because God didn't make just Jesus in the world. He made you. He wants to see you. And he doesn't just see Jesus. He sees you. And he also sees your sin. Um, and so does Satan. Like This is how we know that there is a legal right uh, for Satan to cause us harm in the courtroom. Okay, so uh, this is kind of the, the heart of the question I'm getting at. Because of this doctrine, which I believe that we cannot be made right before God except 100% by the blood of Jesus. Once we have believed that, accept that, acknowledged that, and we've been baptized, we say my righteousness comes from Jesus alone. Does Is there any power left for an accusation to stick against a Christian? If someone says to me, Carl, you treated me—you were very condescending in the way you treated me, and that hurt me. Should I at that point say, well, that's too bad, but you know what? Uh, God doesn't see me. He uh, he just—he sees—when God looks at me, he sees Jesus' righteousness. Therefore, um, I know that may have hurt you, but look, I don't want it to bother me, so I'm just going to move on. What happens next? Well, what happens next is that relationship falls apart. What happens next is the pride that was in me that refused to humble myself and apologize to this person gets a foothold. Uh, And we talked about this before, you know, in Ephesians 4.26, Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not let the devil get a foothold. This, uh, when I confronted with my sin, and I refuse to repent of it, the devil gets a foothold. The accusation that I am proud sticks. And it doesn't matter that I call myself a Christian. It doesn't matter that I say that I believe in the doctrine that God doesn't see me. He only sees Jesus's righteousness. It doesn't matter that I say that I'm saved by grace alone through faith alone. On this particular issue, I have not applied the blood of Jesus. And what do I mean by that? Well, if I truly believed that the blood of Jesus cleanses me from all unrighteousness, then I wouldn't deny my guilt. The only sins that are truly forgiven are the sins that are truly confessed. You cannot be forgiven of sins you did not commit. So if someone says to you, Uh, or if uh, the voice of accusation says, you're guilty of this, um, and we deny it, we can't be forgiven of it because we haven't acknowledged that we even committed it. It's only sins that we acknowledge we've committed that can be forgiven. And so, if that accusation is true, and we do receive false accusations, but I think more often than not, the accusations we hear are accurate. Um, And when those accusations come and we don't receive them, there is now legal right for, um, for demons to cause problems in our lives. Um, and, you know, that can sound like cartoony and not real, but just think about it. You know, in this example, if, I, if, I, um, if the hair sticks up on my back as someone uh, uh, confronts me over my sin and I dig my heels in, that even that statement, digging your heels in, goes right in line with uh, Paul's warning about not giving the devil a foothold. I'm I'm allowing this lie, this sin, this unholiness to root itself in me. Now it's going to wreak havoc. Uh, and so when I am in that courtroom, my accuser has legal grounds to prosecute me, and he will take it. He will take every opportunity. He will even make up opportunities. He will make up lies even sometimes that that as long as I believe them, he has the right to harass me. And so, when I enter that courtroom and I don't make the right pleading, I'm going to come out in chains. I'm not going to come out in freedom. I'm not going to come out in justice. So what is the right way? How do I get the right result when the voice of accusation comes against me? The right is really easy. The pleading that we need to make is, I am guilty. I'm guilty. I'm guilty of adultery. I'm guilty of murder. I'm guilty of hatred. I'm guilty of unforgiveness. I'm guilty of pride. I'm guilty of lying. I'm guilty of cheating. I'm guilty of stealing. I'm guilty of addiction. Whatever it is, um, the, 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 the right pleading is, I am guilty. And it's only then that the uh, righteousness of Jesus comes into play because you don't have a way to make yourself right again once you are guilty of something, but Jesus does. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might, might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus became our sin but again, this is like the death angel that's coming. You're entering the courtroom. The death angel's coming to render his verdict, and it's up to us at that point to choose whether or not we believe we need that blood. Uh, the person that says, um, "Well, I don't really want what God wants from me anyway," I, you know, like I just want to do my own thing. They're saying, "I don't need, I don't need protection from this death angel." But also, the person that says. Um, uh, that you know that just holds on to a doctrine that says I shouldn't ever have to face accusation again will also be in trouble, um, and that is the trick of the devil. Is that uh, we uh, a lot of times um, believe that because we believe this doctrine of saved by grace through faith alone that we shouldn't have to face the voice of accusation again, but we do. The blood needs to be applied. Again and again and again, this is deliverance ministry. Um, you know, when we talk about delivering Christians from demons, we're talking about areas of our life that we have not fully surrendered to God, and that is not that is not controversial. I mean, all my life I've heard sermons about people saying, uh, you know, where is there a uh, a room in your heart uh, that You know, maybe you've given Jesus space in the living room, but he wants to come into the bedroom. He wants to come into the closet. He wants to see what's in all these rooms. We've heard these uh, kinds of messages in the most cessationist churches in the world. Uh, And yet it's the same idea, you know, like that. Yes, we have welcomed Jesus into the foyer. But if we're going to grow in Christ, if we're going to see power, uh, if we're going to walk in liberty, if we're going to walk in freedom, then we are going to have to let Jesus into all the doors. And that means at every door, there's going to be a need to apply the blood of Jesus, because why is that door closed? That door is closed because we believe a lie. That door is closed because there's a sin that we don't think Jesus' grace is big enough to cover. And so we might even, you know, paste paste over the door uh, some tape that says, you know, uh, some kind of doctrine that says, because of this doctrine jesus doesn 't need to come into this room uh and that is a that that 's cutting the gospel short. Only sins that are truly committed can be truly forgiven, only sins that are truly confessed can be truly forgiven. If we want the verdict of uh freedom, then we have to admit our guilt, and the judge also requires that we admit our guilt because he is committed to justice. He is committed to the truth. For the sake of the rest of the world, the judge can't just let you go skipping off uh, with no consequences. He holds you to the truth. And the truth is that you're guilty. And the truth is that Jesus' blood is enough for that guilt. So it's safe for you to confess it. There's also a level of commitment that we make uh, when we acknowledge that we're guilty because what we like to do most of the time is to to um justify our sin to to uh water it down and say it's not as bad as it looks it might be we you know we call it a white lie or we call it a, um you know we we try to gen- make it gentler somehow uh or we talk about why I was justified in having that affair or why I was justified in looking at that, at that pornography or whatever it might be we we um downplay it but when we say I am guilty. We are agreeing with God about what is good and what is evil. And there is a level of commitment that comes from us to say, I also am turning away from this thing because I don't want to be a part of evil. Our admission of guilt helps us to get there in, in uh, one powerful step forward. Um, and this is the key to deliverance. So I hope that whatever you're facing right now, and you probably woke up uh, hearing the voice of accusation. Some of you set an alarm clock and you slept right through it, or you got up and hit snooze and then you slept too late, you missed your Bible study, you didn't have your quiet time, whatever it was, because and, and throughout that you were hearing all the, this voice of accusation of, you'll never be a good Christian, you're so lazy, you're so undisciplined, all these kinds of things. You want to get out? Admit, Lord, I'm guilty. Please forgive me. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. Starting right now, what do you want me to do? And Jesus is thrilled with that response. You will walk out of that courtroom free, and the world will become a just place around you. So I hope this has been helpful. I hope it's been simple enough. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. And um, I look forward to being with you again here on the Faith of the Fathers podcast. God bless.